This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. This is the Mike Francesa podcast, and my guest, Jim Cott, has had a remarkable career, both as a baseball player. And as a broadcaster, he is well into his 80s. He is still as uh, sprightly and as lively as you can possibly be. He goes into the Hall of Fame this year richly. He had a 25-year baseball career. He won 283 games. He won 16 gold gloves. That's why the book is good as gold. Uh, and he has been a longtime broadcaster. Ed, in his years as a pitching coach and his time around the game, he has spent over six decades, six active decades as an adult in baseball and has spent eight decades of his life in baseball. We'll talk next with Jim Cobb. Want to email the Mike Francesa podcast? Drop Mike a note at podcast at gmail.com. The book is good as gold. Jim Cott with Douglas Lyons. My eight decades in baseball. We're joined by the one of the latest Hall of Famers, the uh, classy left-hander who had a great and long career in baseball and then has had an equally long one as a uh, very talented broadcaster. The ageless Jim Cott joins us. Jim, welcome. How are you? Thanks, Mike. I'm doing fine. Thank you. And I know all the proceeds, uh, and the book is Triumph Book. Uh, that's the publisher. All the proceeds go to the uh, to a uh, foundation that deals with the cancer that uh, unfortunately took the life of your daughter. So uh, our condolences on that, and that's uh, very, very nice of you, and you're doing a wonderful thing here, obviously, with all the proceeds going to that to that charity. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, pretty much an unknown uh, cancer, and uh, it's a steep hill to climb, but <clears throat> we're trying to get as much research as possible. Jim, uh, you've had an incredible, as you mentioned, eight decades. I mean, I, I, I'm old enough to have seen Jim Cott pitch in person. I did a couple of times. I mentioned many times that game in 67 that I was at, which uh, was the game where Manilin Killebrew homered, which played a big part in that pennant race, which Jim was a big part of. But Jim had an amazing career. And it's funny, Jim, when I was a kid, my first glove, and I was a shortstop in Little League, I hated that I had a Bobby Shands glove because I had a pitcher's glove. And I was like, why is there a pitcher in my glove? I'm not a pitcher. And I looked up Bobby Shands and knew nothing about him and realized, wow, this guy was, must have been an amazing fielder. They talked about him being this incredible fielder as a pitcher. And you, obviously, following in the footsteps, Greg Maddox following in yours, became a legendary fielder, 13 gold gloves. Bobby Shands, the guy who became the prototype for all great fielders on the mound. 
Well, what, the way that happened was my dad was a Philadelphia Athletics fan. He actually went to Cooperstown 1947 to see Lefty Grove inducted. That was his favorite pitcher. So I became a Philadelphia Athletics fan. And it was a radio game then in the late 40s, early 50s. And uh, when Bobby would come in to pitch against uh, the White Sox, I could pick up the game on radio. And the announcer would say, here's Bobby Shantz, best fielding pitcher in baseball lands on the balls of his feet. He's ready to go left or right, always in position for a ball hit back at him. And of course, Bobby was only 5'6", 135, but I was a little kid uh, class-wise growing up in Zeeland, Michigan. So I'd go to the backyard off the garage and kind of make believe I was Bobby Shantz. And uh, about 10 years later, when I went to spring training, went through pitcher's drills, the coach said, hey, kid, you look just like Bobby Shantz. And course the added thrill is i was able to give him a a legacy award at the rollings gold glove dinner a few years ago he was 93 i was 80 and now i'm 83 and he's 96 and he is making plans to come to my induction which i would be absolutely thrilled with a lot of years we discussed on talk radio why was jim cott not in the hall of fame i never had a good reason he won 283 games he won 16 gold gloves uh, he was a incredibly successful pitcher for a long period of time. Uh, I didn't have an answer, and now I don't have to answer it anymore because now he is a Hall of Famer. So congratulations. Uh, one thing I've noticed through the years, uh, Jim, is that it doesn't matter when or how. It doesn't matter how big you were as a, as a player or a coach. When you get into your sports Hall of Fame, it is an incredibly meaningful event. Do you feel the same thing? Uh, no question. You know, Mike, I, I was blown away by the the magnitude of the attention that it created from people I haven't, uh, even a college roommate, but we were uh, pitchers on the same staff back in 1957. I haven't heard from him in a long time. But, uh, yeah, it, it's humbling and kind of mind-boggling when you think of how special with all the guys that played the the game to to be in that company and I got a wonderful call from Sandy Koufax and of course I would never pretend to be in the same class there's different degrees in the Hall of Fame and I was just uh, happy that the Golden Days Committee uh, decided to reward you know longevity and consistency over uh over dominance and most of the starting pitchers in the hall of fame are guys that were dominant, uh, over a, a period of time. But, uh, yeah, it is a special feeling and, uh, uh, the attention that it's created has been pretty exciting. You know, Jim, um, I think that's the golden age of baseball. Now I started watching baseball in 60 and 61 as a little kid. I was obviously a Yankee fan, as everyone in that time, because there was no National League team in New York. I was a Mickey guy like millions and millions of others, okay? So our whole being was him as a kid. But that was such a golden age for pitching. You mentioned Sandy, Juan Marichal, Don Drysdale, even guys you rubbed elbows with, Camilo Pasqual, Mudcat Grant. I mean, there were so many great, pitchers and if you look at the stats it really bore it out because they went to the rule change in 69 just to help the hitter but what a great time i mean they were great hitters great power hitters great legendary that's the time of mantle and Mays and frank robinson and clemente and we can go down and hank aaron and go down the line home and killebrew 
they were great sluggers, great offensive players, but it was such a golden age for pitchers. It really was. I mean, and particularly the National League pitchers. When when I look at the American League, you know, we weren't the overpowering pitchers maybe until Jim Palmer came along, Sam McDowell in the mid-60s. But Whitey was kind of the gold standard then, Whitey Ford, and he was what we'd call a crafty lefty. And, you know, I was a power pitcher early in my career and later, later, later part of my minor league career, but I kind of fell into that category. But when you looked at the National League and all those guys, and of course, Gibby, when he set the gold standard in 68, kind of forced him to lower the mound. But yeah, then it was it was so meaningful to be a starting pitcher and to be able to carry the game, you know, into the ninth inning and hook up with the guy you were facing, which doesn't exist anymore. And that was a big part of the game. It was a, it was a pitcher's game and until they began to, you know, lower the mound and do other things that's now created a home run derby game. Well, what, what do you think? Uh, I mean, listen, you're a guy who not only had a brilliant career as a pitcher, you were a pitching coach. You then became a TV analyst, one of the best ones in the business. So you have followed the game for all these decades on a very high level, a very technical level with a technical eye. You're a pitching expert. That being the case, the involvement to where we are now, where every bullpen has three or four guys who have a 99-mile-an-hour fastball and a wicked slider, everybody throws 99. The, st- the relievers have better stuff than the starter. In the old days, you had a bad guy, you had a beat-up starter come out of the bullpen if you got the starter out. They don't want to get the starter out. Now you want to get the starter. Now you want to keep the starter in there if you can and hit him. You don't want to face those bullpens. This involvement here in baseball, you like it, you don't like it? Oh, I don't like it at all. I mean, I think it's, uh, uh, you know, on one hand, it's proved to be effective. But as far as the appeal of the game, uh, it, it, it's taken away the appeal of the game. And I, I really think I'm, I'm a, a dinosaur and a, and a radical. So am I. So, things, so am I. I'm, I'm right there with you. So I am too. Yeah. But I think that uh, I think that the time is coming when, and we used to play inter squad games like this in spring training. Three balls, you walk; two strikes, you're out. And because of the number of pitches that, and guys pitching perfect games in six innings, you take them out of the game. Well, let's begin to limit the number of pitches that they have to throw, and let's get the ball in play a little more often, and we'll have a more active, crisper game. Now, again. Uh, that's probably not going to happen, but I, I think it would make it a better game. I think we'd have fewer injuries. We wouldn't have to carry 15 pitchers on the staff. I mean, most of the time in the past, seven of your pitchers did about 90% of the work. And, and now you have a different pitcher for every hitter. I mean, the way it's going, eventually we'll have 27 pitchers for 27 outs. And that might be effective to the analytics guys and for winning and losing, but it will not motivate me to watch a baseball game if that's what it's coming to. Jim, last night, and I admit last night I, I called the Yankee game the worst 4-2 game ever played. Uh, it, it was that bad. Both starters were out of the game in the second inning. Cole left having given up two runs on two hits, given up two runs on two hits and five walks. The Tigers got two hits the rest of the game and struck out 11 times. That was it. They didn't score another run. 
the starting pitcher left in the second inning. Neither starter went two innings. There were one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. Six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 pitchers used in the game and 15 walks. Yeah, that's, that's just, I mean, it's unwatchable when, when that happens. Even a couple of my grandkids are, who were avid fans and, and little league athletes and good athletes and loved it. They say, you know, there's nothing now to provide excitement uh, in the game to attract us to it because the only excitement is finding out whether your team wins or loses. I and, agree. Uh, you know, agree. but the, but the inside excitement of, uh, what are they going to do here? Are they going to bunt, hit and run? So-and-so going to steal a base? That part is gone. And and most people I see sit there, they they look at their telephones half the game and then, oh, yeah, by the way, our team won. But, uh, you know, I, I, want, uh, I want the game to be a little more exciting between the lines. And the players are more athletic and more talented than ever in the history of the game. And to turn them into robots, particularly the pitchers, is a really disservice to their ability, because if trained properly, uh, Clayton Kershaw could have pitched a perfect game. Uh, oh, that Darvish was unbelievable. And he took himself out of the game, which is hard to, uh, just to show you what his own mindset is now. He took himself out of the game, which is, uh, can yeah. you imagine coming out of the yeah, game with a never, perfect game? That, that never happened. The only, the only way you came out of the game is if a hitter knocked you out of the game, and you usually were allowed to stay in until at least you were, till the other team scored the tying run. And, and, uh, that was a real sense of pride. I mean, the win has been so diminished now for starting pitchers. Hey, they don't even I, count wins on site for the Cy Young anymore. How ridiculous is I that? Know, I mean, I that know. is embarrassing. I know. I, I agree with you. But, you know, sometimes, Mike, I think I, I, I try to find out the demographics of who is really attracted to the game today, who watches it on TV uh, are there young people? Because, you know, those of us in, in my age bracket, you know, we talk about this kind of stuff, but yet the changes aren't made. And last night they had 51,000 at Dodger Stadium. So uh, whether it's promotions or because it's a social experience, people are still coming out to the game, not as many as once did. And TV ratings are are certainly down the the way the TV games are being spread around. Sometimes it's hard to find out which channel your team is playing on. Oh, that's, yeah, the the streaming world, what we've seen now, what we're going through in TV is a whole nother chapter because we have now seen, you know, we have seen the Superstation, which was a great creation for the fan, now been destroyed. And now the fan does not even know. I have people call me all the time because they think I still follow it, which I do, and they'll say to me, where is the game tonight? I don't know. I can't find it. I can't find it. I right. can't. They can't even find their own games anymore. I mean, so that yeah. you're doing a bad job when your fans can't find your game. But that's where we've gone here. But you know, it's it's a funny thing. You're someone who can follow this trail. We're talking with Jim Cott. The book is good as gold. My eight decades in baseball triumph books. Jim getting into the Hall of Fame this year. Incredibly well deserved. Um, and you know, he's a remarkable athlete. He always was. He was always in phenomenal shape, kept himself in great shape. I got to get to his golf, which impresses me even more than the baseball. I got to get to that later <laughs> before we say goodbye. I mean, the guy can shoot 75 right of your lefty. My God, he's a hero. But, the, uh, you know, a, a remarkable athlete, 
13, uh, 16 gold gloves. I didn't even realize until I looked at it that Maddox had actually won more than you. I can't believe he actually won more than 16. He won 18, right? Which is incredible. Uh, I mean, uh, it's just an incredible number. I re- and you were such a uh, classy fielder, and you were always in, you know, a tall guy at that time who was in great shape on the mound. Um, you saw the, you were there, you were part of it. You were even a pitching coach. You saw the change where the starter was starting to be devalued and they were quicker to the pen. Give me five hard, go out and give me five hard, go out and get, where did that change start where somebody decided go out and give me five hard and don't worry about finishing the game? Yeah, you know, I'm trying to think of the exact time. Now, my days as coaching, uh, it didn't happen then. We had Tom Browning, who I went to the four-man rotation. I told Pete Rose I like pitchers pitching every four days, and Browning won 20 games for the first time since Bob Grimm did it for the Yankees back in 54. So that was very unusual. But I had a pitcher one day come off the mound. I won't mention his name. He got five innings and sat down next to me on the bench. And he said, well, I did my job. And uh, I looked at the scoreboard and I looked at him and I said, well, no, we're playing nine innings. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but but uh, that that began to seep into it. And then I came, I think like Tony in the late 80s, Tony La Russa, the, the, uh, used the bullpen a lot. Uh, when we won the World Series in 82, uh, Whitey said, I'm going to build my pitching staff from the ninth back. And we had Bruce Souter and we had a little quartet of, guys in that bullpen that had, you know, special tasks. So, but you still wanted to get, uh, you know, six or seven, if you could out of your starter. Right. But now uh, this whole thing about the third time through the batting order. Well, the reason the averages might be higher third time through the batting order is like Warren Spahn taught me. He said, kid, when the game's tied in the sixth or seventh, it's just starting. You need to learn to pitch that hitter a little differently in the eighth inning than you did in the first. So, you know, pitchers are just falling right into that trap of what what the analytics say. I mean, you know the example over the last couple of years. They took Blake Snell out because it was a he was pitching like Sandy Koufax. You know, and it's I amazing, Jim. They, they, I told they, Sandy and kidding. I said, you know, I wish they had analytics back in '65. They'd have taken you out of the game in Game <laughs> Seven in the fifth inning. <laughs> Pitching a shutout with two days rest, pitching a, a, a Sandy Koufax. I mean, who who was, I can say, I actually, I only saw him pitch in person once in my life, but I can say he was the best pitcher I ever saw. I mean, he, I still say to this day, I've never seen anybody, I've seen some great pitchers, great pitchers. Tom Seaver was a great pitcher. Uh, many guys were great pitchers. No, uh, Roger Clemens in his prime was a great pitcher. But Pedro Martinez was a great pitcher, but uh, nobody was Sandy Kovacs. He was the only guy that, that I, I tell people they used to cheer if somebody got a run on the scoreboard. Like if, if, he was, if the game was on the scoreboard and you saw his number up there, if you were at the game and somebody put up a number that was not, uh, not a zero, the place would actually explode in that game saying somebody scored on Kovacs. Well, you know, you're exactly right. And I'll give you an example. I never saw Sandy pitch in person because uh, until I faced him in the World Series in game two of 1965. And, you know, on Saturdays we were playing, everybody was playing. You had Diz and Pee Wee doing the game on TV. So now we're uh, we're warming up out in the bullpen. And, wow, I'm just in awe. You know, we were about 20 feet apart. 
uh, of watching him warm up and the way the ball exploded out of his hand. And I, uh, as the game started and we each got through the batting order, uh, the first time quite handily. And I said to Johnny Sane, our pitching coach, I said, you know, John, if I give up a run, this game's over. And fortunately we scratched out, uh, two runs. One was unearned and we ended up winning that game five to one. Then he shut us out in game five and he shut us out in game seven yep. on two days rest. But, uh, we didn't have radar guns or pitch counts or anything like that, but with no disrespect to Gibby and Tom Seaver and Marichelle and Fergie and on and on. Yes. To me, Sandy stood out not only uh, with the way he pitched, but because of the team he pitched for, he never got a breather. He never got a lot of run support. So he's pitching 300 innings and 25 to 30 complete games and winning games two to one. So you never had a stress-free seventh or eighth inning in those games. It was always, uh, you know, it was always pressure every inning. And, and he competed for six or seven years better than anybody else ever did. Talking with Jim Cott, Hall of Famer Jim Cott. Uh, the book is Good as Gold, My Eight Decades in Baseball. Uh, Triumph Books, the forward by Bob Costas. Uh, and again, Jim, going into the Hall of Fame, and rightly so, with his 283 wins and 16 gold gloves. Uh, and also, and many, many people who are listening will, will listen to this, uh, know Jim as a very talented, very personable broadcaster, one who, uh, spent many years. And I always thought was the, from the Yankee standpoint, the direct descendant from Kubek because Kubek told you the truth. Jim Cott told you the truth, and there's not. A, that's one thing that's hard to come by is guys who will actually tell you the truth about what they feel in, in there because a lot of times they don't want you to do that, especially now on these uh, team-run broadcasts. That has changed dramatically. But how about – and it's funny, you had a great line in there. J Jack Buck was one of my all-time favorites. I mean, when Dog and I used to do the show, Jack used to come on all the time. One of the funniest men I ever met in my life. Great after dinner speaker, the nicest man. And he was a big fan of our program. So he used to come on all the time and he always wanted to go out to dinner with us. So we'd go out to dinner with him, dog and I, and he was hilarious. And he told you, which was, I got a big kick out of, Hey, don't ever tell anybody how easy it is to do TV, uh, baseball on TV. Uh, you know, don't let anybody know how easy it is. You know, it's, <laughs> that's typical, typical Jack Buck. Yeah, when Jack Buck, I was actually covering the 1983 World Series for David Hartman's Good Morning America program. It was the Orioles and the Phillies, and Jack was there doing the network broadcast, and and he saw me hanging around the cage, and he said, "Oh, you're going to get into this business?" And I said, "Well, I don't know. I'm just I'm just trying it. I don't know if uh, it'll end up being something that uh, I can do for a career or whatever." But so he called me off to the side. And I thought he was going to give me some sage announcing advice. And he said, look, he said, don't ever tell him how easy it is to steal and cash the checks. <laughs> of course, when I, when I played for the, for the Cardinals, I got to know Jack, uh, you know, real well. Because, what a wonderful uh, guy. And, and, yeah, and one of the really funniest was. guys ever. The only thing you couldn't do, the only time you could get him mad, the only way you could get him mad is if anybody at the table didn't order a bud, you were dead. That was it. If, yeah, if, right. if you, right. He'd get up and walk out if you didn't order. A, I told someone once, some kids, I said, don't, don't order anything but a bud with Jack here. He's not staying. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. He, he, was, he, he was completely loyal to the beer. That's for sure. Yeah. 
But he was a wonderful and a funny guy and a great a, a great broadcaster. But you know what? You've had an incredibly long career. As long as your pitching career, that's how long a TV career you had. Yeah, it's actually uh, actually it's a little longer. I think now this is my sixty third year uh, season being involved in Major League Baseball one way or another. Player, uh, coach briefly, and then an announcer. So it's and you mentioned Tony Kubek. Uh, uh, you know, the Yankees are doing a nice thing for me. I'm very flattered. I'm getting a uh, a Lifetime Achievement Award at their Welcome Home Banquet here um, coming up in May. Congratulations. And I want to – yeah, thank you. I want to make sure that I thank Tony because the, the reason I got the Yankee job, uh, I was doing games for – I was working for ESPN, and in my younger days when my legs were stronger, I was rollerblading along uh, – Ocean Boulevard in Madison, Connecticut. And this guy hollers my name. And I thought, who knows I'm here? And it was Brian Burns, who was the director of Major League Broadcasting. And uh, so I went over to to talk to him. And he said, yeah, uh, the Madison Square Garden Network's trying to reach you because Tony Kubek is retiring. And he's recommended that they hire you to take his place. And so that's how that all evolved, and uh, so I owe a, a, a lot to Tony Kubek, and uh, I always, as you said, respected the fact, you know, when you're a team announcer, sometimes they want you to be a cheerleader, and and so uh, you, you need to take a stand to be objective and uh, understand that there's a team on the other side playing the game just as well, and so I think Tommy, Tony did that as well as anyone, and I'm, I'm grateful for what he did for me. Well, you know, I, I was always able to only have to worry about my program so I could always say what I wanted. It's not as easy as a broadcaster on these broadcasts. And I don't know if fans know that. It isn't easy all of the time. You can ruffle feathers. You can ruffle feathers of the players downstairs, and you can ruffle feathers of ownership that don't like you saying things about their team. Well, uh, you know, George is a good example of that. When I was a player, George and I knocked heads. I never thought he'd approve me doing Yankee games, but he did. And then occasionally I would get one of the executives, uh, you know, the Yankees poking their head in the booth, say, well, George probably isn't going to like what you just said last last inning. And I said, well, give me George's cell phone number. I'd like to talk to him. So I'd be on the elevator with him once in a while, and I'd say, George, I understand you were unhappy with you know, I was kind of promoting this Baltimore pitcher the other day, getting his first win. He said, Jimmy, you tell it like it is. You know, uh, I, I appreciate that. And I think that was an example of, uh, you know, not a, t- a lot of times in Yankee land, they would preempt what they thought George would think. But if you stand up to him and you realize that all you're doing is telling the truth, I think he respects that. So I, I never had a problem with him. Uh, doing Yankee games, it was usually the people underneath him that uh, uh, you know got a little uh, antsy about what I, I, I had might the say. same. I had the same relationship, Jim, and he hired Mike and the Mad Dog for the Yes Network. It was George who hired him. He wanted us there. He hired us. He made us part of the radio deal on FAN, and he said, "I want Mike and the Mad Dog on my network." Uh, as soon as the network started, he and he and whenever I saw him in the elevator, and we used to talk horses because you know you have you're a horse guy, so am I, and George was, and as a matter of fact, George and I share the same trainer and Bill Mott, and uh, he would say, "Hey, 
You say whatever you want. The only time George ever got mad at me, and he got really mad, was when I put Howie Spear on. That was the only time oh, he went yeah. crazy. Yeah. He went after, yeah. he he went to the general manager. He said, you can't let him do this. But that's the only time he ever went nuts was, uh, I mean, Leo Henry went crazy sometimes. Philip Pelly could go crazy sometimes. But George only went crazy the one time is when I... And I didn't put Howard Spear on the, on, the, on the TV network. I only put him on the fan. But when I put him on the fan, he went nuts. I mean, that, that was the yeah. only time that I ever had a, a run-in with him. But, hey, you were always someone who spoke your mind and, and was able to do that. And that's a tricky thing to do in, in these broadcasts, especially with the team broadcast. Because, you know, everybody, players get sensitive. I mean, I, I know that for a fact. The players get upset with the older players when they hear stuff they they don't even like right. that so it's it's, it's it's it can be a tricky thing yeah sure yeah well yeah it's part of it and uh i think i i learned good for i learned well from timmy mccarver and tony's the same way uh our job is to be honest and objective and we don't work for the player we work for the viewer and any kind of run-ins i've had uh, i had you know one briefly with alex rodriguez and a few other comments and once they understand that your job is not to be their PR guy but to tell the fan honestly and objectively what's going on on the field uh, and I've never had any problems like that I think uh, what Timmy taught me well is if if you said something that appeared to be controversial make sure you're in the clubhouse the next day where you can uh, be visible by that player and if he's got something to say he'll come over and say it to you so uh that uh, that always worked well for me. Talking with Jim Cott, the book "Good as Gold: My Eight Decades in Baseball." Um, Jim, I talked about the '60s, and I really believe I would have loved to have been here in the '50s when they had three teams, and you had Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. That had to be phenomenal. I didn't see that, but I saw the '60s. So many great baseball players uh, before the NFL took off before the other sports caught up to baseball, there was still baseball in your era. You passed and rubbed elbows with so many, so many great hitters, so many great players. Who was the toughest guy for you to get out? Who was the guy that you, no matter what you did, you couldn't get out. Well, the biggest name guy was, was always obvious to me. And I mentioned it often as Al Kaline. Uh, you know, Brooksy, Brooks Robinson uh, hit well for an average uh, against me, but K-Line did the most damage. The four players I played the most, uh, faced the most, and I always had told them that I helped them get in the Hall of Fame were Go ahead. Uh, Louis Aparicio, Brooks Robinson, Al K-Line, and Carl Yastrzemski. But uh, K-Line did the damage. Now, Reggie Smith uh, hit me very well. There was a kind of a lesser known outfielder named Lou Clinton who I remember Lou Clinton Red yep. Sox. yeah yep. and for some reason I could not get him out but uh, but K-Line was the one that always uh, always uh, stood did K-Line out the, did he hit you the other way or was did he did, or did he hit you for for power or did he just get a lot yeah, of base hits hit, off you uh, he hit 10 home runs off me which is the most uh, that I gave up to anybody Mickey hit 7 they were all solo shots but uh, I think K-Line, and, and the thing with Al, he was kind of like Frank Robinson, is if you felt like you wanted to buzz him upstairs and push him off the plate, his eyes only got wider and he got better. So you you couldn't knock him down and intimidate him. And, uh, you know, being, me being a left-hand pitcher, when we'd go into Detroit and I roomed with Jim Merritt and we were pitching back-to-back, I said, well, Rumi, 
What do you think with K-Line? Is he going six for eight, or do you think we can hold him to five for eight? <laughs> <laughs> what a classy player K-Line was. You know, when when the Yankees started going bad and they got old, that's when I started getting old enough to go to the stadium more and more. I didn't get to go much when I was little because I didn't have a father. And when I got to go a little more, the Orioles were really good, and the Orioles used to rub the Yankees' nose in it. I mean, they used to, with the great Orioles teams, the Robinsons and Boog and all those guys and the great pitching staff, I'm telling you, I never liked them, but I couldn't believe how good Frank Robinson was. He, it just seemed like he never made a mistake. He never made an out. I mean, he just, he, what a pain in the neck he was. Oh, no question. You know, and Frank, we had some pretty uh, vocal battles, uh, you know, and I, I did well against him average wise, but every now and then he would, you know, he'd uh, hit one off me, which he did off everybody. But I've always said, you know, Frank, when they made that trade for Milt Pappas, he turned the Oriole organization around. That's what turned them into world champions. Brooksy was a great player, but Brooksy was a quiet guy. And Frank just was, I mean, he was on the field competing for his life. And I always say when you mention Mays, Mantle, and Aaron, you have to make sure. You mentioned Frank Robinson I agree. because he is right there with being an all-around player. And, uh, boy, he played with a chip on his shoulder, and uh, uh, he was one tough competitor. I enjoyed my battles with him. And like a lot of players, when your careers are over and you meet them, everybody softens and you get along nicely with them. But when you play against them, boy, there's, there's a certain hate factor there that exists. Well, those Oriole teams, which were great year after year, and because it was the Yankees, they couldn't rub the Yankees' nose in it enough when the Yankees were bad in the late 60s, you know. And that's like 67 when I went to see you guys and Mickey hit the homer that tied the game and then it rained, you know, that great year. I don't think anybody ever played better than Yaz did that year. Yaz was amazing. Oh, no, I don't yeah. know how he hit off yeah. you that season, but boy, what an Yaz wasn't as good as those guys, but for that season, it was like magic. He was a. Ama- I remember I got to see a lot of his games that year and watching them and following them the late in the season when the, you guys played them up there that last weekend, and uh, it was just amazing how he played. I think that September of '67, if you start. Uh, you know, chopping things up of a player's career. I mean, uh, personally, that was my my best year, best month ever. And it was such a great month because without playoffs, every game was like a playoff right. game because we had four teams battling for the pennant. And, I mean, Yaz, every time Boston needed a run, he delivered. I don't think anybody in the history of the game has better had a better September than Yaz in September of 67. He was unbelievable. And I tell you, uh, the other guy who was incredibly clutch and never got, I mean, everyone talks about the power, but Killebrew was such a good clutch hitter. I remember Killebrew. I never wanted to see Killebrew come up in a big spot. He just seemed to always get a big hit in a big spot. I think that, uh, you know, what, what separated, and I, I remember, uh, in the seventies, I got traded to the Phillies and Alan, Alan Lewis was a, a well-known writer and followed him. And he came over and he said, I'm not voting for your guy first ballot. Uh, and he met Killebrew. I said, well, why is that? I said, what do you want me to do about it? He said, well, all he did was hit home runs. I oh. said, yeah, Alan, what you didn't realize is with he and Tony Oliva is they hit good pitching. 
there are guys that can hit home runs when your team's ahead six to one and the stats look good. But, yep. Uh, Killer was a guy, uh, like our most meaningful game in 65 was just before the all-star break when he hit a, uh, a two out two run homer off Pete Nicholson to, uh, to give us a big win over the Yankees. So he, he did his, uh, he did he, his damage against good pitchers and, and he was clutch situations and he was clutch. I mean, he got big hits. I, I remember him. I never wanted to see him up in a big spot. He was uh, unbelievable. Uh, and he just seemed to always have a knack for, for coming through, you know, uh, you obviously have, you know, anyone who could play as long as you did and feel the way you did, you've kept yourself in unbelievable shape. You're in your eighties here. You mentioned late in the book down in Florida, you, you, you play a lot of golf and you play, uh, at some good courses. I know MacArthur very well, but a guy who can shoot 75 left-handed and shoot, which is remarkable anyway, shooting your age, but, and turn around and shoot 75 Right-handed, you got to be in the Guinness Book of Records. I, I've never even heard of anybody doing that. Well, when I took up the game, they didn't have left-hand equipment. So I learned to play right-handed, and then uh, left-hand equipment came out, and I became more uh, natural there. So I, I did that freaky thing at 75. At uh, at 83, my game has deteriorated uh, immensely, but I, I did enjoy some good times in the 70s, and, you know, that was kind of a – you shot uh, 75 right-handed and left-handed at the age of 75. Yeah, and I, you know, when Golf Digest called me and uh, the guy was all excited because I had told my friend Lauren Rubenstein about it, and the guy at Golf Digest called and said, well, I've looked at my all my uh, records and, and nobody's ever done that. And I said, Cliff, hold on a minute. Nobody's ever tried it. I said, I'm probably one for one. I'm the only guy yeah, that's don't be it. modest. That's an incredible. <laughs> First of all, shooting your age is incredible. But uh, how much do you play now? Do you still play a lot? I play as much as I can. Uh, not as as much as I did. I, I I love to go out and practice and hit balls. But at my age, I, I can't quite do that as often. But uh, yeah, I get the, I get out there. Uh, we're getting ready to head up to Vermont for the summer, and I, I certainly play a lot up there. And I've played a fair amount here in Florida. So I love the game. You know, somebody asked an old amateur player, "Why do you play golf? Keep playing golf?" And he said, "Because it is so difficult. It's the hardest game, and I'm trying to figure out how to do it." Right. And uh, so I, I kind of fall into that category. I think everybody does, you know, and, and yeah. it's, it's just so hard to play, uh, to play well. But it's, it's, it's a game that we all love playing. But, I mean, to play it that well, I mean, obviously, you know, guys, people, I try to tell people, I say, you don't realize how exceptional these athletes are. Anybody who plays, right. like I told my kid that, anybody who plays in the major leagues, you don't realize how good they are, how special right. they are just to even get there. You guys are on a different level. Like I always tell people, you know, they say, oh, you've been around athletes. I said, yeah, they're a different, they're different than we are. Just like, right. you, as you would expect, they just have gifts physically that we don't have. That's all there is to it. You weren't given those gifts. You were given different right. gifts, whatever they were. But there's a reason why you guys can do these things. I mean, you have certain physical gifts. Yeah, it's, uh, you're right. It's a gift. And, uh, I think everybody that in my era that falls into that category is grateful that we have that gift. You know, it's something that you don't really earn. You're blessed with it. And your job is to, you know, maximize that and make the best of it. 
Did you play while you, when you were in the majors, did you play golf during the season or you didn't play golf? I didn't take it up till I was in my thirties. Okay. I, I, I played a lot uh, between starts. Then I, that's when I really began to, to play a lot. Because, you know, the brave pitchers were always fanatical about playing. You know, oh, I'd yeah, bump into them on the courses here on Long Island and stuff, and I'd see them. They'd be out. And, you know, uh, certain players who have come through the teams, uh, I, I won't mention any names, I would see them on the courses a lot during the summertime, sure. you know, in the yeah. mornings. And, you know, they liked to play before they went to work. And, you know, God bless them. So what if they hit and did their job? Who cares? But golf, you know, was a very natural component for a lot of baseball players. Yeah, it sure was. It's a, it was good therapy. Baseball players, particularly pitchers, love to play golf. Golfers love to fish. Golfers love to fish. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's their hobby. <laughs> that that is, but that's remarkable. Uh, how good a golfer you've been. So, were you in your prime? Were you scratch? No, I never got that good. No, got down okay, but uh, never. You know. As golf is a game, probably like pitching, uh, no matter how well you do, you never reach what you think you should do. And uh, so I, I, I was uh, a decent player, but uh, never down uh, scratch or top rank amateur or anything like that. We're talking with Jim Cott. The book is published by Triumph. Good as gold. My eight decades in baseball. He goes into the Hall of Fame this year. The other thing that you take from the book is how much you have traveled. You love to travel. As you've gotten into your 80s, do you still travel as much as you always have? I mean, you have traveled an incredible amount of miles. Yeah, one of the things on our horizon, and uh, at 83, and I would be 84, and and would have to maintain good health and get doctor's permission, but uh, we spent two and a half months in New Zealand a few years ago, and uh, my wife is an avid fly fisher person, and uh, I did baseball clinics over there, but we love New Zealand, and uh, I would love to go back there again, but, you know, JFK is putting on a flight this fall, 17 hours nonstop. So wow. that's the big challenge is to be able to screw up the courage and be healthy enough to say, yeah, I can do that. Because once I get there, it's going to be uh, uh, it's it's just going to be such a great experience. We love our time there. Give us the give me the what, what you've been able to travel incredibly, not only throughout our country, but everywhere. What's your favorite place? What, what, what's the place you've been where you said, wow, I'd love to go back there. I loved it. Well, that would be New Zealand. If okay. I were younger, I, I probably, and particularly, I mean, no disrespect to our country because we're, we're, we've grown up in the greatest country in the world, but I'm not too thrilled about what's going on in it now. Not, none of us I've are. Not, said, none of us yeah, are. If I, were, uh, if I were younger and my wife feels the same way and I have a lot of friends, uh, I'd moved to New Zealand. I mean, I love Scotland for golf, uh, went to the Netherlands to check out the, you know, where my paternal grandparents were born and been to Ireland. And uh, yeah, I've been to a lot of places but in Australia, but New Zealand would be the one uh, that I would go back to time and time and again, if it were only as far away as Europe, because uh, the people, the country, uh, it's kind of that, that atmosphere that existed in our country when I grew up in the forties. How many, you know, everybody was friendly. Yeah. How many years have you called Florida home? Uh, we've, I've been here for, uh, I've been a Florida resident and usually I'm just here in the, in the winter time for, uh, well, about 40 years. Okay. You know? 
The Twins yeah. were, were in Florida when you when you were uh, when you were playing. Where did the Twins uh, have spring training? We trained in Orlando, okay. at old Tinker Field. Yeah, we train. I had uh, sixteen spring trainings there, and then uh, um, off to Sarasota and St. Pete and a couple other play Yankees trained in Fort Lauderdale. But most of my springs were in Orlando. Can you believe the way Florida? I've been going to Florida since I was eighteen. Can you, and I have a place in Palm Beach. Can you believe how how Florida has grown? How remarkably Florida has grown. Well, as you say that, uh, we are in the process of selling our house here. We uh, we love Vermont, but we'd like to get out of there a little bit in the winter. That's because uh, everybody would, in the world is trying to buy a house in Florida right now on the East Coast, and you yeah. know it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we're about to get out of here and spend our time in Vermont. And uh, I all found a place like Beaufort, South Carolina, to spend a few uh, months in the winter. So, yeah, Florida's getting a little... Like Thomas Friedman wrote a book uh, years ago called Hot, Flat, and Crowded about China. And that's what's happening here in South Florida. Well, listen, I appreciate your time. Congratulations on uh, getting in the Hall of Fame. Uh, it's richly deserved. And, you know, you have a million friends in baseball, and everybody's thrilled that uh, you will have that day. Enjoy it. Uh, good luck with the book. Again, my condolences on the passing of your of your daughter. I mean, uh, I hate to have the book under tragic terms, but uh, again, good luck with the book, and and again, congratulations on getting into the hall. Thanks, Mike. Always a good time visiting with you. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much, Jim Cott. The book "Good as Gold: My Eight Decades in Baseball," uh, Triumph Books, and again, all the proceeds go uh, his daughter is dedicated to the Neuroendocrine Cancer uh, Tumor Research Foundation. His daughter uh, was diagnosed and passed from that uh, rare disease, and all the proceeds from the book will go to that foundation. So uh, Jim helping out and doing uh, what he can do uh, to turn something that was obviously a distinct terrible negative into a positive in the best way that he possibly can. Remarkable athlete really always was as a pitcher and his longevity and then his golf exploits and his travel. I mean, he's 83 years old and he's like a kid. God bless him. Really uh, amazing. Uh, the kind of life he's had, he's had a very rich full life and he continues to have one. He sure does. So good luck to Jim Cott. Uh, the uh, next week, as I said, we will do a lot on the draft. We will start to zero in on the Derby, and obviously we'll continue along with everything else that's going on. Uh, so you can uh, get the podcast at betrivers.com or in all the places where podcasts are available, Apple, Spotify, YouTube. So uh, check it out and have a good week, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Hey, it's Mike Miss here. What a time to be a Philly sports fan. And you can share the excitement with me each week on the Mike Missinelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Listen and subscribe to the Mike Missinelli podcast today, wherever you get your podcasts.